I just want to say again, welcome to Journey Church. It's our privilege to worship with you today. If you're our guest, a special welcome to you. And we've developed a place just for you following the service. It's back there at the glowing blacklight sign. And uh, if you're wearing white, you should stand next to the glowing blacklight sign. It's feel angelic for just a moment anyway. And uh, there'll be people in there for you who are our guests who would be delighted to answer your questions and just serve you in any way, anything you want to know about the life of Journey Church and, and it isn't like uh, you have to spend an hour in there. You could stop in for 30 seconds and uh, just if you want something quick or whatever level you need something at, there'll be people in there after the service delighted to help you. Like Brandon said at the start of the service, we are starting a new run of messages that we call Authentic. And it's an eight-week series, and we're going to unpack over the course of eight weeks what the Old Testament prophets have to say about our spiritual authenticity. And I don't know about you, but I really want to live an authentic, real deal life. I never want to give anybody in the world a chance to say about my life, oh, he's a fake, that Brian, he's a fake, or that Brian, he's inauthentic, or that Brian, he's a phony. And I don't think anybody in this room would want that either. If you've ever been called a fake or a phony or inauthentic, you know the sting that those words leave don't you? And so for the next eight weeks, we're going to listen into the words of the Old Testament prophets who literally, though they spoke thousands of years ago, these guys' words cut through the millennia. They grab us by the shoulders in a sense. They shake us from our spiritual malaise, from our spiritual complacency, which is a level that lots and lots of us, me included, live at. They act as sort of a bucket of ice-cold water, as the lives of these prophets pour over us and literally call us to live radically authentic lives, addressing us right where we live, inviting all of us to fresh new heights of spiritual growth. Our big idea for today goes like this. No matter what we face in this roller coaster life, we can hold steady because God is always with us, even when our eyes can't see him and when our hearts can't feel him, which is the truth that we see crystal clearly in the life of a guy named Elijah, who we're going to talk about today. But to understand Elijah, we need to look a bit at the world in which he lived and prophesied. I leaned pretty heavily into some writing by a guy named John Ortberg, a couple, Kevin and Sherry Harney, as I prepared and researched this message, the whole series, really, they were quite helpful. Uh, Just a show of hands, quick. How many of you have noticed that the Middle East is a place of great unrest these days, right? Yeah, not too hard to notice that, right? You read any story about the Middle East these days, and you're going, what a mess. Who's going to fix that? How is all that going to go, right? But if you think the Middle East is a mess today, you should have seen it in the days of a guy named Elijah. Just a bit of background setting of Israel in Elijah's day. Let me set this up a bit for you. In the year 931 BCE, Israel is divided into a northern and a southern kingdom. They split. They separate. Never again to be in the Old Testament one nation. The first king in the northern kingdom is a man named Jeroboam. He is corrupt and he is evil. And he leads the people of God, the whole nation of Israel, into the worship of idols. And Jeroboam is just the first in a string of about 20 very bad, very evil kings up in the north. They are as bad as it gets. Let's pick up the story of the northern kingdom in 1 Kings chapter 16, starting in verse 29. And uh, 
if you've got a text, you could turn there. And I'm just going to say that if you don't normally bring your Bible around here, this is going to be a great run of messages to bring your Bible because I can't put all these verses on the notes page. You'll, just, you'll see how many we're in today. And they'll certainly be up on the side screens, but it's going to be a good run for you to have a Bible on your lap. If you need help getting a Bible, we'd be glad to help you. Just holler at us and we'll help you with that. First Kings 16, starting in verse 29. Ahab, son of Omri, began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of King Asa's reign in Judah. He reigned in Samaria 22 years, but Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. He's a record setter, okay? And as though it were not enough for him to follow the example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel. You've heard of Jezebel, haven't you? the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians, and he began to bow down in worship of Baal. First, Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. Then he set up an Asherah pole. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. And that is saying something. Here's the deal. Ahab marries a pagan wife, Jezebel, and then puts his pagan wife in charge of all of the religion in the northern kingdom of Israel. Jezebel is a Baal worshiper. Notice even her father's name, Eth Baal. That says something about who that family bows down in worship to. And Jezebel makes it her life mission to turn the nation of Israel away from the worship of the one true living God, Yahweh, and toward the worship of Baal. We see just one of the ways that Jezebel tries to accomplish her mission is to systematically annihilate the prophets of the one true living God, Yahweh, which was absolutely unheard of even in those incredibly bloody days. Prophets of old, they were normally given a sort of diplomatic immunity by kings. Kings hated the prophets of God, but they would not think of killing them until Jezebel who has prophets murdered in cold blood. And that's the situation that Israel is in when we pick up the story of Elijah, an introduction to Elijah's life. Look at 1 Kings 17. You could turn over there or follow along on the side screens. Now, Elijah, who was from Tishbe in Gilead, told King Ahab, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. And we just said a moment ago that the mission of King Ahab's wife Jezebel was the annihilation of the prophets of Yahweh. But in the face of just such a threat to his very life and limb, Elijah, he marches straight into the presence of King Ahab and he makes this declaration of drought. Drought, see, was the judgment of God on the northern kingdom for their incredibly evil ways. There's a little nuance here that we also pick up in the text if we look closely, is that Baal, the false god who Jezebel was trying to lead the nation into the worship of, he is supposedly the god of the weather. He wears lots of god hats, but one of the hats he wears as god is the god of the weather. So by Elijah's proclamation, God is proclaiming, we'll just see who the real god of the weather is. Just think about the courage that would have taken on the part of Elijah to march into the king's palace and declare that. Look at 1 Kings 17, starting in verse 2. Then the Lord said to Elijah, go to the east and hide by Kareth Brook. It's like, all right, you got in the king's face. Now you better run and hide, all right? So go east and hide by Kareth Brook near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. Cool. 
like the original fast food. You don't even have to hit the drive-thru. The birds, they just bring it to you. So Elijah did as the Lord told him, camp beside the Kareth brook east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. Very cool. But after a while, look what happens. The brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. Fast food runs out eventually. Look at 17 verse 8. God has a plan, though. He's not leaving Elijah hanging out there. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go and live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. It's very interesting that God sent Elijah to a widow who would have literally been the last person you would have expected God would tap to provide for his prophet. Typically, widows were the ones who were in need of provision, not the provider. Look at verses 10 through 12. So he went to Zarephath. He's obeying God. He arrived at the gates of the village. He saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, Would you please bring me a little water in a cup? She says, Sure. As she was going to get it, he calls after her, Bring me a bite of bread, too. But she said, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house. Isn't it interesting? Elijah doesn't announce who he is. She just knows that he is a prophet of God and says, I swear by the Lord your God. Notice, not her God. She's a pagan. This is a pagan widow. And she swears by the Lord his God that she doesn't have a single piece of bread in the house. I have only a handful of flour left in the jar, a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die. That's what's on her to-do list for the day. Gather up some sticks, cook a meal, and die. It's like, wow, bad day. Look at verse 13 and 14. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and crops grow again. It's real easy to blow by the key word in this text. Notice what Elijah says. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. It's the key word. First, before you get your own food, make a meal for me. Then God will take care of you. Now, I know me, and I know that if I'm that widow, I'm going, I think I'll go ahead and wait for God to do his thing first in this deal. Elijah, you tell God to fill up my flour, fill up my oil. After he does that, I'll make you a heck of a meal. Anything you want, I'll get that for you. Anyone else like me? But God's question to this widow, it's God's question a few thousand years later to us, though, is will you trust me right now with just what you've got? That's God's question to us. Will you trust me right now with just what you've got? And there's a spiritual principle in play here with Elijah, with this widow, with us, and it's this. If you don't trust God with what you have right now, you won't ever trust him even when you have more. Because just having more never builds, never develops trust in us, does it? And watch here what the widow does, 1715 So she did as Elijah said. Get that? She did as Elijah said. 
And she and Elijah and her son continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. Please do not miss the pregnancy of that. This widow has a son to provide for in the midst of a drought. It's bad. And she actually goes and does what Elijah asks of her. She pours out her last bit of flour, her last bit of oil to make a meal for Elijah before she feeds herself, before she feeds her son. Now, if I'm that widow, I'm making Elijah a tiny meal, right? I'm making him a very small loaf of bread, more like a cracker. I'm making him a cracker. Here you go. But not this widow. She makes Elijah a full-on meal. And by doing so, she places herself and her son at the full mercy of God, at the place where if God doesn't show up, she's toast, she's done. And don't you imagine that every single day, like three times a day, whenever that widow would go to her jug of oil, her jar of flour to make that day's meals, that she probably thought to herself, whoa, what if I would not have obeyed God? What if I hadn't have trusted God? Just think about the incredible blessing that came about to this woman and her son because of her reckless generosity. Her reckless generosity. Let me ask you, how are you doing with the reckless generosity thing? How are you doing with your personal financial giving to God? Not the leftovers, not what's left after I take care of this and take care of this and take care of this. How are you doing with giving to God first, as the text says, before you take care of this and this and this? A whole bunch of families around the life of Journey Church had the opportunity back in the fall of 2006 to make a sacrificial above and beyond our normal offerings gift to this thing we called the Light Initiative. And we were all at that time trusting God to be able to give way more than we had in the jar. Those of you who participated in that, how's that going for you and for your family? Are you still praying and trusting God on that faith journey? Are you still learning to take risks in your giving, risks that actually stretch your faith? Are you giving more and more in such a way that it's becoming a natural part of just how you live your life? I am a generous, giving person. Can you say that about your life? Are you responding to God's generous provision in your life by becoming increasingly generous? Because see, in God's economy, everything that we've come to expect in the economy of this world is literally turned on its head. The last, they're first with God. The servants, they're the greatest with God. And this widow models that economic reality for us. The weakest, most vulnerable person in society, an impoverished, pagan, widow, single mom, is the one whose generosity keeps the prophet Elijah alive. Point three on your outline is miracles. And unfortunately, I had to cut this point out so that we could get out sometime before noon today. So no more miracles. They're done. Not really, just cut it out of the sermon, all right? So moving on to point four. We come then to this very critical moment in Israel's history. The worship of Yahweh, the one true living God, is being threatened by the worship of Baal. 
this idolatry deal, it's plagued Israel since the very beginning. And it's finally come to a tipping point. Will the Israelites continue in the worship of the false god Baal? Or will they return to the worship of the one true God of Israel? Because, see, there is not room for both of them. And God is about to use Elijah to force Israel's hand in the matter. This battle takes place in 1 Kings 18. You can flip over there if you've got a text. And we see, here's the setup of the story. We see Ahab's servant Obadiah, who just so happens to be a devoted follower of Yahweh. He arranges a meeting for Elijah and King Ahab, just as the Lord had directed. We pick up the story in verse 16 of chapter 18. This is Elijah confronting Ahab. So Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come, and Ahab went out to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, So is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? Very interesting that the king would call Elijah the troublemaker of Israel. I've made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family, you're the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord. You have worshipped the images of Baal instead. End of small talk. Elijah gets right down to it. Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah, who were supported by Jezebel. That means that they actually eat at her table. She provides for them. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. This is incredibly fascinating. Elijah, he's just a runaway preacher. He's being hunted down by the king's wife. She wants him dead. Here's the king, Ahab, who's the king of all of Israel, Who's given the orders here? Notice that? Elijah is. Elijah's the one who's calling the shots. He's given the orders. And he's got no office. He's got no standing. He's got no crown. He's got no throne. But he gives an order, and the king does what Elijah says. Where's that kind of authority come from? It comes from just one human being, one guy, Elijah, in this instance, being completely and totally submitted and yielded to God. That's where that authority comes from. And so the scene is set. Top of Mount Carmel, people from all over Israel have gathered. 850 false prophets are there. Elijah is there. And on one side of the dividing line stand the false prophets, the king, the power of the government, all of his army. On Ahab's side is the absolute license to do anything that the people would like to do. There's no Ten Commandments on that side. There's no law about caring for orphans and widows and strangers and the poor. There's no call for devotion to love God or love neighbor. It's just idol worship on that side of the line that promises pleasure, that promises material wealth for those who will just bow down and worship the false god Baal. One side of the dividing line. On the other side, though, stands just one man. One lone prophet who emerges to be God's spokesman, confronting the kings, confronting the whole country. And with that one man, though, is God the one true living God of all of Israel, the God who made them a people, the God who gave them a land, and standing with that one man is the God who delivers meals from the sky, who fills oil jars and flower jars of widows. And to the human eye, we'd go, whoa, Elijah's way outnumbered, 850 to one. But to the spiritual eye, see, Elijah is so incredibly far from being alone. And look at what he says in verse 20 of chapter 18. 
Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And this is a very, very big deal because the Israelites, they don't actually think that they've given up on following God. They still, as a matter of fact, pray to him when things aren't going well, when Baal doesn't appear to be answering their prayers. They'll actually go like, well, I better resort a little higher up the food chain. I'll talk to Yahweh about this one. They, they simply think they've added Baal to their God portfolio. They've decided, I will worship Yahweh and Baal. And notice what the text says here, what Elijah says. How much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? See, the Hebrew people, they very often use walking as a metaphor for all of life. And so what Elijah says here is that they have chosen a very miserable way to live. They're just limping along through all of life, see. What about you? Do you have any bales in your life who you're torn between worshiping it or them and worshiping the one true living God? You got any of those? And here's what a bale is if you haven't made the connection. A bale is absolutely anything that tempts us away from full devotion to God. It might be a relationship. It might be a lifestyle that prevents you from honoring God with your personal giving to God and to the poor. Maybe for you it's a habit or an addiction that no one but you knows about. It could be a grudge that you just refuse to let go of. Maybe for you, it's pride or power. Sometimes Baal is the insistence, I have to be in control of absolutely everything in my life. I am reserving for myself the right to control everything, the right to have my own way. Baal can be lots and lots of things. Anything that diverts your attention away from God is a Baal. And maybe you've been telling yourself for a long time now that you can have it both ways. That you can hang on to your bail and hang on to God too. But Elijah says, uh-uh, no way. Our hearts, see, they're only capable of giving our full devotion to one master. Jesus says it in the New Testament of the Bible, no one can serve two masters. And Elijah says, look, if you're going to worship Baal, just be authentic about it. Just be real about it. Just be honest about it. Don't be a hypocrite on top of being disobedient. If your drift carries you to Baal, just be authentic. Just be real. If your choice, though, is to worship Yahweh, the one true living God of Israel, then fall down on your knees and confess and repent and start walking upright with him. But you got to choose. It's decision time. It's one man, see, standing against the king and the whole nation saying, you've got to choose. And we await their response. And it is staggering. Verses 21 and 22. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. The people were completely silent. And we don't know, we don't have any idea how long that silence lasts, but it is deafening, isn't it? I'm sure that there's some people standing there in that crowd that day who were sullen, 
who were defiant, some who were probably confused. Some are going like, choose? Why do I have to choose? This having Yahweh and Baal thing, it's working pretty well for me. I call on Yahweh's power when I need it. Baal lets me do whatever I want to do, my own thing. Why do I need to choose? But nobody says a word. Silence. And just think about how sad that moment was. No one utters a word for God. It is just silence. The story doesn't end there. Look at verse 22 and following. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull, lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, that's Baal. I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all of the people agreed. Deal, they said. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, why don't you go ahead and go first because there are a whole bunch of you. Choose one of the bulls, prepare it, and call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls, they placed it on the altar, then they called on the name of Baal, watch this, from morning until noontime, that's a long time, shouting, O Baal, answer us. But get this, there was no reply of any kind, and that wasn't working, see. So then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made, At about noontime, Elijah began mocking them. It's time for a little prophetic trash talk now. And Elijah's about to illustrate for them the utter absurdity of worshiping a God who doesn't even exist. So Elijah begins to mock them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a God. Perhaps he is daydreaming or is relieving himself. The actual translation there implies that what Elijah was saying is that Baal, perhaps he is suffering from irregularity. Maybe your God is suffering from irregularity. Maybe he is away on a trip. Elijah goes on. Maybe he is asleep and needs to be wakened. So they're like, ah, the guy might be right. So they shout louder. (laughs) Following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives, knives and swords until the blood gushed out. That's a picnic whole bunch of fun there. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, no response. Nothing. Then Elijah called to the people, all right, you've had your chance. Why don't you come on over here? So they all crowd around as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down so that Baal would be exalted as the God over Yahweh. They tore the altar down. He gathers up 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And he uses those stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he digs a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons. He piles wood on the altar. He cuts the bull into pieces. He laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water. Pour the water over the offering in the wood. After they had done this, he said, all right, do it again. When they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. See, he's trying to make it really, really hard for Yahweh here. Really, really hard. As hard as he can make it for God. And so the water is there, and it's it's spilling over the altar into the trench. And at the usual time for offering, watch this, an evening sacrifice. Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, and contrast this prayer with how the prophets of Baal were praying. This is so simple. And so profound. 
O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately, the text says, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven, burned up the young bull, the wood, the stone. That doesn't happen every day, burning up the stones, right? Even the dust, haven't seen that. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and they cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. And Yahweh wins the day, so much so that Elijah commands that they gather up all the prophets of Baal, don't let any of them escape, and he takes them down into the valley and he kills them there. End of story, right? But the story of Elijah's life does not end on the mountaintop. We see next Elijah literally in the depths of despair then. 1 Kings chapter 19. And this is so extraordinary that there actually are some Bible scholars out there who say that this next narrative of Elijah's life does not belong in this place. They say it just doesn't make sense, but it seems to make perfect sense if you know anything about life Right? Look at 1 Kings 19, 1 to 3. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all of the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah May the gods strike me and even kill me by this time, if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and he fled for his life. Now just think about this. This is Elijah for crying out loud. The same Elijah who defied the king, defeated 850 prophets, took on an entire nation single-handedly. He was provided for by ravens at a brook, brought a dead kid. I forgot to tell you about that. He brought a dead kid back to life. The widow who provided the meals for him, her son, he died. And Elijah raises him from the dead. You can read that on your own sometime. That a same Elijah, he ran at the sound of just one threat from just one queen. And isn't that just how life works? None of us ever stay at the peak of the mountaintop forever. You and I will have spiritual peaks and valleys as long as we live, as long as we follow Jesus. And lots and lots of times after an unbelievable, adrenaline-filled, record-setting run of achievement and spiritual victory, we can find ourselves in the most vulnerable times of doubt and fear and even clinical depression. And that's how it goes with Elijah. As high as he was in chapter 18, that's as low as he's going in chapter 19. Look at verses 3 to 9. He went to Beersheba, this is Elijah, a town in Judah, He left his servant there. Then he went alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. That is a depressing scene. He sits under a broom tree. Even the kind of tree is depressing. Nobody likes brooms, right? A broom tree. And he prays that he might die. Here's what he says. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he laid down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around there, and beside his head there was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water, so he ate and drank and lay down again. God is treating Elijah the way we treat a cranky two-year-old, right? Here's a Twinkie, here's some juice, now go take a nap. 
So he ate and drank, and he lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, Get up and eat some more. The journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up, he ate and drank. And the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. And the good news, see, is that very often God loves us so much that he doesn't answer our prayers the way we pray them. Isn't that just the way God works? Elijah is so down, he doesn't know if he can go on. But see, God's not done with Elijah yet. And the same thing goes for you, and the same thing goes for me. God hears Elijah's honest and authentic and passionate prayer, just like he hears yours. Your honest, your authentic, your heartfelt prayers. Elijah is down, he's out, he's discouraged, he feels he can't go on, but he tells God, see, just how he feels, just how it's going. He's authentic. He's the real deal. And you and I, we have that very same ability with God. Elijah prays to God from the very depths of despair, and God hears those prayers from the heights of heaven where he resides. And God already has a plan in motion to lift Elijah up out of the pit. Look at Elijah's fresh beginning. 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 10. God's got a whole new beginning for Elijah And here's what the Lord said to him. What are you doing here? God meets him in the cave and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And God actually asks Elijah this question because he's run so far away from God's people. He's actually abandoned his post. He's AWOL. He's running away from God. He's running away from what God has in mind for him to do. And Elijah is showing classic signs of depression. He's got suicidal thoughts. He has to be reminded to eat and to sleep. His perspective on reality is distorted. And you can bet that inside of Elijah's mind, there's a little voice that kept saying things to him like, you call yourself a prophet. You have more doubt and you have more fear than the people who you preach to. You ran out on God after everything that he did for you. You left his people just when they started turning from Baal, just when they needed you the most. There is no way that God could ever use somebody like you again. And I'm sure those tapes just played over and over and over. But God sees and God hears and God cares and God does an amazing thing starting in verse 11 of chapter 19. Elijah replied to God's question, what are you doing here? This is his reply. I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They have torn down your altars. They have killed every one of your prophets. This is the distorted reality thing that's a classic marker of depression, isn't it? It wasn't the people of Israel who were killing the prophets. It was one woman. It was just one woman. Her name was Jezebel. It was not all of the people of Israel. And now they're trying to kill me too, he says. Go out and stand before me on the mountains, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by. This is an amazing thing the Lord does. And a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so he replies again, and he gives God the very same complaint that he just got through giving him moments earlier. 
And we get to this place in the text where we're looking in on Elijah's life and we're going like, all right, what in the world is God going to do with Elijah? Is he just going to discard him? Is he just done with him? Is he going to just give up on him? Not even close. Not even close. Look at 1 Kings 19.15. This is what God says to him. Then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came. Just go back the same way you came. That's God letting Elijah know that he can have a whole new, fresh start. God's not even close to being done with Elijah. And here's where we really learn from Elijah's authenticity. See, that's a valley, and this is a mountain. This is Mount Carmel. And we see Elijah. He wins this incredible victory over the prophets of Baal, annihilates them, incredible victory. But just moments, literally moments, probably hours later, he begins to slide into the depths of the valley, doesn't he? And it starts with this death threat. Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you by tomorrow. And down he goes. And he keeps going down, right? He lays out underneath that broom tree, and he says, Lord, just let me die. Will you just let me die? I just, I want to be all done with this. And then he sinks even lower. He goes 40 days further and ends up in the cave, in a cave, in the middle of the Negev desert, like the middle of absolutely nowhere. And you know what we see all along the way is that God is with Elijah here and that God is with Elijah here and that God is with Elijah here, and that God is with Elijah here, and God's not done with Elijah. Because God sees, and God hears, and God knows, and God cares. And what we notice about Elijah, what we pick up about his authenticity, is that he's not just grinning and bearing life with God. He's not just putting lipstick on a pig, see. He's saying, God, this sucks. God, I don't like this. God, I don't want this. God, I'm tired. And it's in the midst of Elijah's very lowest ebb as he's recounting for God all that is awful about this life, we see that God has never left him. God has absolutely never left him. God's been with him all along the way from the peak of the mountain to the depths of the valley. And God sees and God hears, and God cares. And it's actually through Elijah's honest and authentic and heartfelt expression of everything that was going on in his world that God begins to open up a whole new chapter in Elijah's life. We never have to try to hide our pain. We never have to try to hide our discouragement from God. We have the privilege and the confidence of knowing that our God sees and that our God hears and that our God cares and is with us from the highest heights to the depths of despair and everything in between and that our honest expressions through prayer can actually open up and lead us to new beginnings and fresh directions just like it did for Elijah. I'm going to ask you, if you would, please, to just take your things and set them aside. And I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads, if you would. And I just invite you to use this time to speak to the Lord about what you're thinking about. Just tell God what's on your heart. You can do that now.
I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed if you would for the next few moments. You might have come into this room today and you might be at the lowest ebb of life. Discouraged, depressed. Maybe you, like Elijah, are feeling useless to God, but you've just been sucking it up. You've just been painting a smile on your face, pretending to be happy, even with God, maybe especially with God. But hear God's invitation to you today. And that invitation is for you to open up to the very same level of authenticity with him that Elijah lived at. That's God's invitation to you. God invites you to honestly express your heart to him. Tell God what's really going on in your world. Because the truth is that God does see, that God does hear, that God does care, that God is with you. And that through your very candid expression to God through prayer, new beginnings, new direction, a new lease on life can come just like it did for Elijah. You can live at that same level of authenticity that Elijah did. All you got to do is crack the door with prayer. And maybe you're sitting in this room today and this God, Yahweh, is a complete and total stranger to you. But the truth is, it doesn't have to be that way. As a matter of fact, God doesn't want it to be that way. God loves you so much that he made a way for you to have an authentic relationship with him. He sent his one and only son, his name was Jesus, to die on the cross, to be your savior, the rescuer of your soul. And by you putting your faith and trust in him, you can begin a friendship with God today, right now even. And if that's you, if you're choosing to do that today, I'd invite you to express that to God by praying along with me. Right where you're sitting, you can pray a prayer that goes something like this. God, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. God, I know that I've sinned in ways that I shouldn't have. But today, God, I realize that you are perfect, that you are holy, and that, God, my sin has separated me from you. With everything in me, God, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I ask you to please forgive me. Please send Jesus to live inside of me. God, I want to live an authentic life. I want you to be my friend. I want you to change me. I need you to clean my life up. And God, starting today, I make you the boss of my life. And that decision right there to begin a friendship with God, that's the biggest decision a person will ever make. It's the most weighty decision of your whole life. So much so that around here, we actually ask people to tell us when they've made that decision. And I'm going to ask you to do that with me right now. I want you to know that nobody's looking around. Nobody's going to embarrass you in any way. But if you prayed with me just then to give your life to Jesus Christ, would you be so bold as to slip your hand up and make eye contact with me and just say, yeah, I, I did that. Yeah, you guys back there. I see you guys. Way to go. And you two over there. Good job. Would you make sure I catch your eye? I don't want to miss anybody. It's a big, big moment. 
right now, God is changing you and he's making you new. God, thanks for the life of Elijah. Thanks for the call to be real, to be authentic. The fact that we don't have to keep any cards covered up with you, God. You just tell us, just put it out there. And somehow, we don't exactly understand how it works through our putting it out there with you. You open up fresh beginnings, new starts. God. I pray that we as a community would live authentically. That would be the mark of our lives. That we'd be all in with you and very real and very candid about that truth, God. Thanks for the folks in this room who started a friendship with you today. That is a huge deal, and God, we're so grateful. Pray that you would get around them. You would set them on a whole new course of living, that you would bring people into their lives who will help them come alongside and show them what it means to live life with you, to follow you, to be authentic with you, God. We love you and we thank you, especially for your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray.